Live from New York City, it's the Gary Null Show. And now, your host, Gary Null. Now that we've Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null. Always nice to be able to share this hour with you. Today, the latest on heart conditions, heart attacks, what we can do to live longer lives and healthier lives. I'm going to be sharing some new insights presented by someone who works with me on anti-aging, and that is Bill Falloon of Life Extension. Also today, I'm going to talk for the men in the audience. I think you'll know that a lot of men, especially over the age of 40, some even younger, have problems with erectile dysfunction. Some new and exciting research on that level as well. And also, how we can prevent uh, strokes and the power of zinc. We have a lot to share. But then, on another level, we have a lot more to share. And I want to keep it away from uh, COVID today because we've done more than anyone else in American media on exposing the inconsistencies and accuracy about COVID. And it's up on GaryAnall.com, articles, and on PRN, on our archives of over 100 programs we've done with outstanding men and women from the world of science and medicine, all orthodox, all pro-vaccine, so you can refer to any of that information. It is really qualified information. So today, we're going to take on different issues, and uh, we're going to share those with you. And here are some. They're fun. For example, we're going to talk about millennials in the workplace. Some are really good, and I, I'm so excited to be able to work with them because they're energetic, they're inspired, they come up with the great ideas. They don't really have barriers. They'll just say, I've got this idea. And if it's frequently a very good idea. But Simon Sinek, who himself is a millennial, um, he says that millennials in the workforce are a generation of weakness. What does he mean? It's worth a look. Also, on Bill Maher, he takes on a lot of issues on his new rule segment. I thought you'd find this amusing because as a filmmaker, as a documentarian, who's produced, written, and directed over a 100 documentaries. Um, I know what I like when I go to the movies. I know what inspires me. And that's why a lot of us, I'm not alone, when we do have some time to ourselves, we want to relax and watch a good movie, we frequently go to Turner Classics because there are some of the finest films ever made. And then I go out to a movie today and I'm just bored with them. I'm thinking, what were they thinking to make this? So he's got a little talk on that. And also, this is why you, we can't have nice things. What does that mean? This is really interesting. You're going to find this really, really interesting. The video is about stuff, from light bulbs to printers to phones, and why they aren't better than what they could be. It's called building obsolescence, meaning making something completely worthless at a certain point. They can even produce dresses now in different countries like Bangladesh that if you were to rip them, uh, it's cheaper to buy a new dress than to repair something. Wow. I grew up with that generation of 
family that lived through the Great Depression in the Second World War. Now, I was born after all that, but boy, my parents taught me about my older brother's pants went to me. My pants, blue jeans, went to my younger brother. And so we really appreciated living within our means. And uh, everybody could ha everybody had talent. Everybody could do something that was unique, that they were respected for. So when something broke, we directly, you know, my family or one of our relatives could fix anything. But we weren't alone and we weren't unique. We were very self-sufficient. What happened to that? What happened to that as individuals and what happened to it in products? Aren't new products supposed to be better? Well, they're frequently not. There's a reason for that. And this really interesting mini documentary that you can watch uh, online at PRN.fm also explains that. And then what is dangerous speech? This is particularly interesting because I'm finding a lot of complaints come my way from people in academia and in corporate America who feel they're walking around on rice paper. They feel that anything they say, any gesture, no matter how innocent or honest, could be misconstrued by someone who feels their whole life is about to end because you, you looked at them in a certain way or you said something that they didn't like. And it's taken hold, the woke generation. So we should pay some attention to this because it's one thing for someone to believe that they can say anything and suddenly you're not allowed to say mother, not allowed to say father, not allowed to say brother, sister, uh, because that's that shows disrespect. You're not allowed to hold hands even with your husband and wife because if you do, uh, that's not getting permission from the person. That's a violation. These stupid, inane concepts. What if they get into political power to make those into laws? And that's what they're doing. So we have a lot to share with you. But, of course, we always start with the latest on health and healing. And in that respect, we're starting with something that impacts all of us, our heart. And heart attacks are making a deadly comeback. And according to Bill Falloon, by the way, do you remember how prevalent heart attacks and strokes used to be in the 1960s? Acute cardiovascular death was so common the corporations face management crisis as key executives perish from heart attacks. One of medicine's great achievements has been slashing deaths from heart attack and stroke. In fact, where I'm opposed personally to many of the drugs and medical procedures, they don't work and actually cause harm and death. Hydrogenesis, I wrote about that, Death by Medicine, did a documentary, Death by Medicine. I am absolutely a top supporter of emergency medicine. If you're in a car wreck, if you've severed a finger, if you've just got a tooth knocked out, if you have a, a aneurysm, then you better hope you get into a clinic in the United States because we can help save your life. So I respect tremendously what works, and I challenge what the science shows doesn't work. Well, what we are seeing now is that we were winning the war on health, and also when you were on, win the war on health, you're also lessening degenerative aging such as arthritis and stroke, etc. Instead of cardiovascular deaths continuing to plummet as they have for over 60 years, they are increasing, especially in middle-aged Americans. In some instances, older parents today are seeing their middle-aged children die from preventable vascular disorders. The reasons are not surprising. And first of all, before we give all the credit to American medicine and drugs and surgery, 
Uh, that's not the primary reason that we had an enormous plummet. More people exercising. More people, mind you, when I came to New York City, there was no New York City marathon. I could go for a walk in the park on a Sunday morning at around 7 o'clock and I might see 10 people. Uh, there was no coenzyme Q10, magnesium. Uh, there was no cayenne. There was no vitamin E and togotrienols. Uh, there was no L-carnitine uh, to help a person with a stronger heart. No, no, we didn't have any of that at that time. So we have to really thank those people in the health movement who then began to inspire people to make healthier choices, including eating better and exercising. And of course, there was enormous movement back then towards yoga, meditation. In fact, you would have more people back then going to a a health retreat to meditate in silence for a week than you have today. So let's give credit where it is due, this kind of organic grassroots up movement. Now, underlying the causes of heart attacks today would be obesity and type 2 diabetes. They are literally at an epidemic level. And that is offsetting robust gains made against cardiovascular disease in past decades. The best news I can share with you is that aging individuals can garner significant protection by following proven cardiovascular risk reduction behaviors. Those who fail to measure and correct artery-clogging factors are at very high risk of heart attacks and strokes, and frequently they won't know when that happens. And by the way, between 1980 and 2014, there was 50% decrease in deaths from cardiovascular disease. 50%. In fact, from 1995 to 2014, there was a 44% decline in sudden death in heart failure patients, a leading cause of, of, um, of heart disease and death. So we did make a lot of improvements. So what are the primary risk factors? Uh, that have been changed. Sharp drop in alcohol and tobacco use in the average population. Improve emergency responses. Near perfection in angioplasty and stenting, though those are not curative. They're only temporary, but still they can help save lives in emergency. Huge drops in the LDL blood lipids resulting in changes in dietary patterns, meaning get the to get the fat out of the diet, the saturated fat, go to a healthy plant-based diet. Um, taking vitamin E, in my opinion, and vitamin C are very important with coenzyme Q10 for the heart and also reducing all the sodium in the diet, and that can help you with blood pressure. In fact, there has also been a 20-fold increased intake of vitamin D and coenzyme Q10. 20-fold is 2,000%. That's a huge improvement. So all of those things cause us to reduce cardiovascular disease, but now we're getting back into bad habits. Why? 40% of all adults in the United States are clinically obese. And by the way, 90% are overweight. Remember, before you're obese, you're overweight. Uh, 30% are overweight. So you add those two together. Excuse me, it's not 90%. It would be uh, 30%. So when you add the people who are overweight... 30% and the people who are obese, 40%, you're at 70%. And almost 10% of all adults in the United States have diabetes. And more than 20% of those with diabetes don't know they even have it. 
In fact, 46% of American adults have hypertension, often caused by excess body weight, and many of them don't know that they have high blood pressure. That's why it's called the silent killer. So we have a lot of ticking time bombs, undiagnosed diabetes, undiagnosed high blood pressure, an astronomical uh, increase in surgeon being overweight. And by the way, COVID uh, locking people in, having people not have healthy diets, that really uh, mess with our eating habits. So what do we do? So we stop this 72% surge in Americans becoming overweight and diabetic. And the average insulin, glucose levels, hemoglobin A1C, those are all at frightening high levels. So what is the solution to this? Well, first get your blood checked to make sure you know what you're dealing with. Look at your glycemic levels, blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, hemoglobin A1C, um, and then at least you know what you're starting with. All right, triglycerides also are important, and uh, total cholesterol is also important. So once you have all that in hand, then start and get. make sure your doctor knows you're doing it. Make sure that you have a cardiovascular stress test so you see what your resting pulse is and what your heart can actually do. Mind you, when you're overweight, kidney function is impaired, cholesterol and triglyceride levels are impaired, and that also can cause you to die. So once you have gotten all your blood back and you know what you should do, then start. And it's really, really simple. It's not complicated. What would be my, uh, what would be, um, my cardiovascular markers I'd get tested for? Write it down, please. Homocysteine. Homo, H-O-M-O, cysteine, C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-E, C-reactive protein, C-reactive, R-E-A-C-T-I-V-E, protein. Total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, and uh, also apolipoprotein, A-P-O-L-I-P-O-P-R-T-E-I-N-B, all right? These are the things that make a difference. My blood minerals like calcium, potassium, phosphorus, sodium, chloride, chloride, and iron. My blood proteins, albumin, globulin, total protein, albumin, globulin ratio, and of course your insulin levels. So when you get that all done, and I would add in ferritin, also a measure of your iron status, at least you know where you're at because these are things that are silent. You wouldn't know that you have them. They don't even have any symptoms, and suddenly you end up with a heart attack. And then I would start with exercising, and I would start off exercising moderately, mainly power walking, and then I would increase it from there. So do your power walking on a regular basis, right? All this is important. And uh, check your pulse before and after. Check your blood pressure. Then start eating a healthy plant-based diet, juicing at least three fresh glasses of vegetable juice a day, green vegetables, cucumber, green apple, celery, and lemon. That's a phenomenal juice. For your heart specifically and diabetes specifically, I would take coenzyme Q10, magnesium, calcium, very important, potassium, which is really important, Lower your sodium intake, vitamin E, tocotrienols, L-carnitine. Those are the superstars that would help you in Hawthorne Berry. Now, <clears throat> also, 
Prediabetes is linked to cognitive decline and dementia. So when you get out of being overweight and you get your blood sugar normal, you're actually helping protect your brain and keeping away dementia. And uh, those are two crucial elements. One more reason, just a good reason, to get yourself into good shape. Also, um, the AMPK activation can help maintain muscle mass. That's AMPK, activated protein kinase, um, and it can help people maintain physical functions. The older you get, a supplement called AMPK can make a difference. I would definitely suggest it for everyone in this audience because it it does make a difference. Now, what I'm going to do now, uh, because I'm out of time for this segment, is I'm going to come back to zinc, and I'm going to also come back at a later time. Uh, No, I'll give it real quick for men. If you're having erectile dysfunction, higher folic acid, folic, F-O-L-I-C, acid levels like 1,000 micrograms of, of methylated folic acid is linked to a lower risk of erectile dysfunction. All right, that was a study. In fact, there are six studies, 1,842 men, and uh, those who had the higher levels of folic acid had less erectile dysfunction. That's the latest on health and healing. I'm Gary Nall. We are 16 minutes into our program. We're going to come go to a break. When we come back from the break, uh, we're going to take on four issues. Oh, interesting, all different. We're going to take a look at <clears throat> millennials in the workplace. Then after that, we're going to talk now about this is why we can't have nice things. And the stuff that they've intentionally could make great and last forever. In fact, you're going to see a light bulb that's been constantly lit 24-7 for over 100 years in a firehouse. And uh, why that? Why we can't have all of our light bulbs like that? And then, what is dangerous speech? Now, question: Millennials, we can't lump them all together. That wouldn't be fair because I even have some outstanding millennials working in my office. But I've also, like a lot of other employers, I've experienced those who come to work late all the time, don't do good work, and expect to be rewarded all the time. No sense of meritocracy. Track it back, and you frequently find their parents uh, did not create a more structured and disciplined <clears throat> environment for them. Let's hear what Simon Sinek has to say. What's the millennial question? Apparently, millennials, as a generation, which is a group of people who were born approximately uh, 1984 and after, um, uh, are tough to manage. And they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic. Self-interested, unfocused, lazy, but entitled is the big one. And uh, and because they confound leadership so much, what's happening is leaders are asking the millennials, "What do you want?" And millennials are saying, "We want to work in a place with purpose. Love that. Um, we want to make an impact. You know, whatever that means. Um, uh, we want free food and bean bags." Uh, and so somebody articulates some sort of purpose there's lots of free food and there's bean bags and yet for some reason they're still not happy and that's because um, you, the, they're missing, there's, there's, a, there's a missing piece 
Um, what I've learned is that there, I can break it down into four pieces, right? There are four, four things, four characteristics. One is parenting, the other one is uh, technology, the third is impatience, and the fourth is environment. The generation that we call the millennials, too many of them grew up um, subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies, you know? Where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it, right? They were told, um, uh, some of them got into um, honors classes not because they deserved it but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's not because they earned them but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Some kids got participation medals. They got a medal for coming in last, right? which the science we know is pretty clear, which is it devalues the medal and the reward for those who actually work hard, and that actually makes the person who comes in last feel embarrassed because they know they didn't deserve it, so it actually makes them feel worse, mm. right? So you take this group of people, and they graduate school, and they get a job, and they're thrust into, an, into the real world, and in an instant, they find out they're not special, their moms can't get them a promotion, um, that you get nothing for coming in last, and by the way, you can't just have it because you want it. Right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered. And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem to compound it is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed. Right? And so everybody sounds tough. And everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you got to do. And they have no clue. Right? <laughs> so you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. Right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Right? They were dealt a bad hand. Right? Now let's add in technology. We know that Engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good, right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. Right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing, chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe. Right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn 
to rely on our friends. Some people quite by accident discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains, and for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress, that's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks, right? What's happening is, because we're allowing unfettered access to these dopamine-producing devices and media, basically it's becoming hardwired, and what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. Their words, not mine. They will admit that many of their friendships are superficial. They will admit that their friends, that they don't count on their friends, they don't rely on their friends, they have fun with their friends, but they also know that their friends will cancel on them if something better comes along. Deep, meaningful relationships are not there because they never practice the skill set, and worse, they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when significant stress starts to show up in their lives, they're not turning to a person, they're turning to a device, they're turning to social media, they're turning to these things which offer temporary relief. We know, the science is clear, we know that people who spend more time on Facebook suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook, right? These things balanced. Alcohol is not bad, too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fun, too much gambling is dangerous, right? There's nothing wrong with social media and cell phones. It's the imbalance, right? If you're sitting at dinner with your friends and you're texting somebody who's not there, that's a problem. That's an addiction. If you're sitting in a meeting with people you're supposed to be listening to and speaking and you put your phone on the table, face up or face down, I don't care, that sends a subconscious message to the room that you're, not just, you're just not that important to me right now, right? That's what happens. And the fact that you cannot put it away is because you are addicted, right? If you wake up and you check your phone before you say good morning to your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, you have an addiction. And like all addiction, in time, it'll destroy relationships, it'll cost time, and it'll cost money, and it'll make your life worse, right? So you have a generation growing up with lower self-esteem that doesn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress, right? Now you add in the sense of impatience, right? They've grown up in a world of instant gratification. You want to buy something? You go on Amazon, it arrives the next day. You want to watch a movie? Log on and watch a movie. You don't check movie times. You want to watch a TV show? Binge. You don't even have to wait week to week to week, right? I know people who skip seasons just so they can binge at the end of the season, right? <laughs> Instant gratification. You want to go on a date, you don't even have to learn how to be like, hey. <laughs> you don't even have to learn and practice that skill. You don't have to be the uncomfortable one who says yes when you mean no and says no when you mean no and yes when you, you don't have to swipe right, bang, I'm a stud. <laughs> right? You don't even have to learn the social coping mechanisms, right? Everything you want, you can have instantaneously. Everything you want, instant gratification. Except job satisfaction and strength of relationships, there ain't no app for that. They are slow, meandering, uncomfortable, messy processes. And so I keep meeting these wonderful, fantastic, idealistic, hardworking, smart kids. They've just graduated school. They're in their entry-level job. And I sit down with them and I go, how's it going? They go, I think I'm gonna quit. I'm like, why? They're like, I'm not making an impact. I'm like, you've been here eight months. <laughs> you know? It's as if they're standing at the foot of a mountain and they have this abstract concept called impact that they wanna have in the world, which is the summit. What they don't see is the mountain. I don't care if you go up the mountain quickly or slowly, but there's still a mountain. And so what this young generation needs to learn is patience. 
that some things that really, really matter, like love or job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self-confidence, a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time. Sometimes you can expedite pieces of it, but the overall journey is arduous and long and difficult. And if you don't ask for help and learn that skill set, you will fall off the mountain or you will, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, and we're already seeing it, the worst case scenario is we're seeing an increase in suicide rates, we're seeing an increase in this generation, we're seeing an increase in accidental deaths due to drug overdoses, we're seeing more and more kids drop out of school or take leaves of absence due to depression, unheard of. These are all, this is, this is really bad. The best case scenario, the best, those are all bad cases, right? The best case scenario is you'll have an entire population growing up and going through life and just never really finding joy. They'll never really find deep, deep fulfillment in work or in life. They'll just, just waft through life and it'll be just, it's fine. How, how, how's your job? It's fine, it's the same as yesterday. How's your relationship? It's fine. Like that's, that's the best case scenario, which leads me to the, the fourth point, which is environment, which is we're taking this amazing group of young, fantastic kids who are just dealt a bad hand. It's no fault of their own. And we put them in corporate environments that care more about the numbers than they do about the kids. They care more about the short-term gains than the long-term life of this young human being. We care more about the year than the lifetime, right? And so we are putting them in corporate environments that aren't helping them build their confidence, that aren't helping them learn the skills of cooperation, that aren't helping them overcome the challenges of a digital world and finding more balance, that isn't helping them overcome the need to have instant gratification and teach them the joys and impact and the fulfillment you get from working hard over on something for a long time that cannot be done in a month or even in a year. And so we're thrusting to them, them in corporate environments and the worst part about it is they think it's them. They blame themselves. They, can't, they think it's them who can't deal. And so it makes it all worse. It's not. I'm here to tell them it's not them. It's the corporations. It's the corporate environments. It's the total lack of good leadership in our world today that is making them feel the way they do. They were dealt a bad hand and it's, and I hate to say it, but it's the company's responsibility. Sucks to be you, like we have no choice, right? This is what we got and I wish that society and their parents did a better job, they didn't. So we're, gonna, we're getting them in our companies and we now have to pick up the slack. We have to work extra hard to figure out the ways that we build their confidence. We have to work extra hard to find ways to teach them social, the social skills that they're missing out on. Interesting. I would normally open this up for calls, but I want to get these others in as well. So now let's go to Bill Maher, New Rule, The Debbies, and Finally, and New Rule, the Oscars need to change their name to The Debbies, as in Debbie Downer. Because judging by this year's Best Picture nominees, you couldn't have a worse time at the movies if there was an active shooter in the theater. <laughs> a new poll found that less than half of Americans now go to church. They don't have to. If they want to feel guilty, dirty, and bad, they can watch Nomadland. <laughs> That's the one about the woman who winds up living in her van after her husband dies of cancer. 
In Judas and the Black Messiah, the FBI kills the leader of the Black Panthers, and in the trial of the Chicago 7, the FBI kills the leader of the Black Panthers again. <laughs> Promising young woman has Carrie Mulligan avenging a murderous rapist, but then he kills her too. And she was so close to joining the Black Panthers. Sound of Metal is about a musician going deaf. The Father is about an octogenarian descending into dementia. And Minari is the story of dirt-poor Korean immigrants in Arkansas who put all their food in a barn, but then Grandma has a stroke and burns it down. Now enjoy the show! <laughs> The 2021 Oscars, brought to you by razor blades, Kleenex, and rope. <laughs> Please welcome our host, the sad emoji. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look, I don't have to leave the theater whistling, but would it kill you once in a while to make a movie that doesn't make me want to take a bath with the toaster? <laughs> we... we all had a rough year. A little escapism would have been appreciated, but your list... <laughs> but your list of movies, it's like the menu at some stupid, trendy restaurant where all the choices are very impressive, but there's not one thing I actually want to eat. Where's the comfort food? What happened to show business? Did they all decide to quit cocaine at the same time? Did they forget? Did they forget that Hollywood is still the number one place to go if you're an egomaniac looking to fill that hole from your childhood with applause? At least that's what my therapist says to me. I don't know. <laughs> they forgot how to help people escape from their problems. And then they wonder why they're losing their audience in droves. Of course. You keep offering up the immigrant who shit in a coffee can, and <laughs> at some point, the crowd is going to go, oh, just give me the Netflix movie of Motley Crue taking drugs. And Academy nominations used to say, look what great movies we make. Now they say, look what good people we are. It's not about entertainment. It's about suffering, specifically yours. <laughs> it's not two hours to forget your troubles. It's traffic school at the Holocaust Museum. In 2021, if you're at the movies and wondering, huh, which one is the bad guy? It's you. because you have indoor plumbing and the nominees don't. <laughs> this is one reason why Godzilla versus Kong stomped at the box office last weekend and finally got people back to theaters because it's Godzilla versus Kong, not Godzilla versus Kong and his crippling battle with depression. <laughs> Not that I want to see Godzilla versus Kong either. <laughs> Jesus, is there no... Hollywood used to know. They used to know how to make a movie that was about something. A movie for adults that was also entertaining and not just depressing. 
There was already a category for that. Best documentary. <laughs> you know, important filmmaking about the conflict in Syria or the plight of the hot dog stand owners. <laughs> you know, the part of the Oscar show where you got up and went to the bathroom. <laughs> but that's the whole show now. They don't even have a host anymore. The funniest part of the whole night is the in memoriam segment. <laughs> It's, it's such an odd psychological quirk. I, I keep asking myself, why do so many liberals have this seeming desire to want to be sad? Could it be because being sad allows you to feel like you're doing something about a problem without actually having to do anything? <laughs> like the poor lady living in her van. There is a solution to homelessness, building affordable housing, possibly in your neighborhood. But do, but do people, including liberals, vote for that? No, they fight it. But it does make them sad. <laughs> Without affecting home values. Virtue signaling has already ruined most of the internet, the publishing industry, the New York Times, and most of the colleges where football isn't a priority. Please, at least leave us the movies. Because, <laughs> in all honesty, I gotta ask, if your movie is so woke, how come I'm falling asleep? Before we go to our next uh, video here, a lot of variety today, I always like it. I want to share some things that can really make a difference with your health. I create all of my own products and have my whole career. I'm an inventor. That's how I came to New York City. I wrote a book called Turning Ideas into Dollars about inventions. I never turned any ideas into dollars. I ended up with $12 when I came to New York. And uh, I had a lot of good inventions. The electric fabric measuring machine, the highway flashing safety sign around dangerous curves, uh, the automatic fish feeder, on and on. Had about... Uh, 120 inventions before I was 15. That's why I was always looking out the window in class and letting my mind wonder, there's a problem, what's the solution? Well, today, my inventions do come to fruition, and I spend a lot of time on inventing new protocols, like the one I'm doing right now, uh, for our newest anti-aging clinical study. Things that have not been tried before, and that's what we're doing. But then I look at people in the audience and thinking, how can I help them? Maybe I'll never have a chance to meet them in person and uh, or talk with them, because we have a huge number of people uh, tuning in. Uh, according to Jesse, who runs Progressive, the uh, Progressive Voices, which is the actual parent of uh, this network, 13 million people tuned in in the last year and downloaded information and or listened to the program. So I can't meet all those people, but I can certainly create some things that can help them. And one of the things that can help them is memory stuff. And to help them with memory stuff, I'm also giving them a documentary, Rebalancing Your Life. Wow. Why is memory stuff important? Well, it's because of how I blend the ingredients by understanding the science of nutrition and nutritional biochemistry of what I believe should be in a person's body as a addition to their normal and hopefully vegan, non-GMO, plant-based diet. 
I start off with special ingredients like brown rice bran, flax seeds, acetyl L-carnitine, green tea extract at 98%, polyphenols, and glycerophosphorylcholine. Never heard of that? It's a tongue twister, glycerol, uh, glycerophosphorylcholine, cacao, which is chocolate, alpha-lipoic acid, which people have heard of, very few take it, quercetin, a superstar of superstars, rosemary, Siberian ginseng, ginkgo biloba, pantothenic acid, vitamin B1, calcium, magnesium, yeah, and this wonderful and lecithin and uh, chocolate flavor comes as a powder, delicious tasting, but this is an all-natural uh, product. And for those of you who want to help your health, think of the title, Memory Stuff. Hmm, wonder what this is for. Well, I don't think you have to do a lot of guessing. Memory Stuff. And it's a large can, 330 grams. So I use my knowledge, my skills, my background is in the clinical experience, counseling tens of thousands of people, doing over 47 clinical studies, doing over 300 health support groups, and I know what benefits people. That I do know. So if you want help, one part of that puzzle is memory stuff. Memory stuff. And a video you have not seen before about rebalancing your life because a lot of people are coming out of crisis or still in crisis. A lot of people have depression and anxiety. They don't know the true meaning of their life today. And uh, I believe that you need to have a grounding in the, the importance of your belief in the central meaning of your life. Having something to believe in, no matter what the crisis that you're faced with, can help people survive. So, how do we manage to get ourselves into so many crises during the course of our lifetime? Rarely do we learn any of the important lessons from the challenges presented to us. So in this lecture, I describe many of the ways we imbalance and sabotage ourselves and how to reverse that. So now more than ever, Americans are faced with questionable and bleak futures. How do we get out of this? What is, the, what is required for us to re realign to a more productive and harmonious life? So I present healthful, positive strategies for reaching this goal, regardless of the challenges we face, regardless of your age, whether you're single, married, widowed, everybody benefits. So this is a phenomenal package. I've never offered this package before. So if you want memory stuff, and I know many of you could benefit from it, call this number, 877-627-5065, 877-627-5065. And if you order from Neil uh, in our corporate headquarters, in our vitamin closet, call 646-926-5430, 646-926-5430. Everybody else, call 877-627-5065 because you care about your health. You care about what goes into your body. You want only the finest ingredients in your body. And hopefully, you want someone who's put together a formula that actually makes sense, that's based upon good common sense and good science. Memory stuff. And you're saving 
$45. Call 877-627-5065. This is why we can't have nice things. Longest continuously on light bulb in the world. It has been on for 120 years, since 1901. There it is, huh? It's not even connected to a light switch, but it does have a backup battery and generator. So the big question is, how has this light bulb lasted so long? It was manufactured by hand not long after commercial light bulbs were first invented. And yet, it has been running for over a million hours, way longer than any light bulb today is meant to last. A while back, a friend of mine told me this story, that someone had invented a light bulb that would last forever, years ago. But they never sold it because an everlasting light bulb makes for a terrible business model. I mean, you would never have any repeat customers, and eventually you would run out of people to sell light bulbs to. I thought this story sounded ridiculous. If you could make an everlasting light bulb, then everyone would buy your light bulb over the competitors. And so you could charge really high prices, make a lot of money, even if demand would eventually dry up. I just couldn't imagine that we had better light bulbs in the past and then intentionally made them worse. But it turns out I was wrong. At least, sort of. Inventing a viable electric light was hard. I mean, this is the typical incandescent design, which just involves passing electric current through a material, making it so hot that it glows. You know, less than 5% of the electrical energy comes out as light. The other 95% is released as heat. So these are really heat bulbs, which give off a little bit of light as a byproduct. You know, the temperature of the filament can get up to 2800 Kelvin. That is half as hot as the surface of the sun. At temperatures like those, most materials melt. And if they don't melt, they burn. Which is why in the 1840s, Warren De La Rue came up with the idea of putting the filament in a vacuum bulb so there's no oxygen to react with. By 1879, Thomas Edison had made a bulb with a cotton thread filament that lasted 14 hours. Other inventors created bulbs with platinum filaments or other carbonized materials, and gradually the lifespan of bulbs increased. The filaments changed from carbon to tungsten, which has a very high melting point, and by the early 1920s, average bulb lifetimes were approaching 2,000 hours, with some lasting 2,500 hours. But this is when lifetimes stopped getting longer and started getting shorter. In Geneva, Switzerland, just before Christmas 1924, there was a secret meeting of top executives from the world's leading light bulb companies. Philips, International General Electric, Tokyo Electric, Osram from Germany, and the UK's Associated Electric, among others. They formed what became known as the Phoebus Cartel, named after Phoebus, the Greek god of light. There, all these companies agreed to work together to help each other by controlling the world's supply of light bulbs. In the early days of the electrical industry, there had been lots of different small light bulb manufacturers, but by now, they had largely been consolidated into these big corporations, each dominant in a particular part of the world. The biggest threat they all faced was from longer-lasting light bulbs. For example, in 1923, Osram sold 63 million light bulbs, but the following year, they sold only 28 million. Light bulbs were lasting too long, eating into sales. So all the companies in the cartel agreed to reduce the lifespan of their bulbs 
to 1,000 hours, cutting the existing average almost in half. But how could each company ensure that the other companies would actually follow the rules and make shorter lasting light bulbs? After all, it would be in each of their individual interests to make a better product to outsell the others. Well, to enforce the thousand hour limit, each of the manufacturers had to send in sample bulbs from their factories, and they were tested on big test stands like this one. If a bulb lasted significantly longer than a thousand hours, well, then the company was fined. If a bulb lasted longer than 3,000 hours, well, the fine was 200 Swiss francs for every thousand bulbs sold. And there are records of these fines being issued to companies. But how do you make a worse light bulb in the first place? Well, the same engineers who had previously been tasked with extending the lifespan now had to find ways to decrease it. So they tried different materials, different shaped filaments, and thinner connections. And if you look at the data, they were successful. Ever since the formation of the cartel, the lifespan of light bulbs steadily decreased. So that by 1934, the average lifespan was just 1,205 hours. And just as they had planned, sales increased for cartel members by 25% in the four years after 1926. And even though the cost of components came down, the cartel kept prices virtually unchanged, so they increased their profit margins. So did people know that the light bulb companies were conspiring together to make their products worse? No. The Phoebus cartel claimed that its purpose was to increase standardization and efficiency of light bulbs. I mean, they did establish this screw thread as standard. You can find it on virtually all light bulbs around the world now. But all evidence points to the cartels being motivated by profits and increased sales, not by what was best for consumers. So one of the reasons this light bulb has lasted so long is because it was made before the cartel era. Another reason is because the filament has always been run at low power, just 4 or 5 watts. It was meant to be a nightlight for the fire station, to provide just enough light so that firemen wouldn't run into things at night. And the fact that it was always on reduced the thermal cycling of the filament and components, limiting the stress caused by thermal expansion and contraction. The Phoebus cartel was initially planned to last at least until 1955, but it fell apart in the 1930s. It was already struggling due to outside competition and non-compliance amongst some of its members, but the outbreak of World War II is really what finished it off. So this cartel was dead, but its methods survive to this day. There are lots of companies out there that intentionally shorten the lifespan of their products. It's a tactic known now as planned obsolescence. This was actually the subject of Casey Neistat's first viral video, all the way back in 2003. Thank you for calling Apple. My name's Ryan. May I have your first name, please? Casey. All right. What seems to be the issue today? I have an iPod that I bought about 18 months ago, and, and the battery is dead on it. Mm-hmm. 18 months? Okay. It's past its year, which basically means for um, it'll there'll be a charge of $255 plus a mailing fee to send it to us to, re to refurb it, to correct it. But at that price, you know, you might as well go get a new one. This video got millions of views in a time before YouTube or social media. 
and it spawned a class action lawsuit, which Apple settled out of court. But it didn't stop the company from practicing planned obsolescence. After an iOS update in 2017, users of older iPhones found apps loading significantly slower or the device shutting down altogether. Apple said they throttled performance to protect the battery of older devices and increase their longevity. Of course, that wouldn't be an issue if the battery were replaceable. In a series of lawsuits that concluded in 2020, Apple was fined or reached settlements to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. Undoubtedly, this amount pales in comparison to the extra revenue they generate by limiting the lifespan of their products. But some would argue that planned obsolescence isn't just about greed, but that it's also good for everyone. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, when as much as a quarter of Americans were out of work, an American real estate broker, Bernard London, proposed mandatory planned obsolescence as a way to get people back to work and lift America out of the Depression. He wrote, I would have the government assign a lease of life to shoes and homes and machines when they are first created and they would be sold and used within the term of their existence definitely known by the consumer. After the allotted time had expired, these things would be legally dead, and would be controlled by the duly appointed governmental agency and destroyed if there is widespread unemployment. Now this might sound like a wild, fringe idea, but people were clearly afraid of being put out of work by technological progress and products that were too good. There was even a popular Oscar-nominated film about it. This is The Man in the White Suit from 1951. It's about a scientist who invents the perfect fiber. It won't stain or break or fray. I think I've succeeded in the copolymerization of amino acid residues and carbohydrate molecules, both containing ionic groups. It's really perfectly simple. The Academy Award nomination was for best screenplay. I kid you not. Anyway, Everyone is initially excited about our hero's scientific discovery. He makes a suit out of the thread, and it has to be white because the fiber is so stain-resistant it can't even be dyed. But this is when trouble strikes. The factory owners realize they won't be able to sell as much of this thread because it's so durable. And the workers worry it'll put them out of a job. Why can't you scientists leave things alone? What about my bit of washing, when there's no washing to do? This is when you get the climactic scene where factory workers and factory owners team up to chase down the scientist to destroy him and his invention. And believe it or not, this movie may have been inspired by real events. In the 1940s, the synthetic fiber nylon replaced silk in stockings, and it was so durable that the products became an overnight sensation. There were literal riots when women tried to get their hands on them. When the manufacturers realized they had made the product too good, they didn't destroy the fiber, but they did follow the example of the Phoebus cartel. They instructed their engineers and scientists to find ways to weaken the product, to shorten its lifespan so Boy, people would have to What buy a wonderful more. world it would be if we had things that lasted a long time that were inexpensive and did not destroy the environment or human health. I want to thank you all for listening. Please go to GaryNall.com to look at all the articles and videos and other information that can help you make the better choices in your life. Have a nice day.
deep inside your 